William Cooper wrote in the 1700s, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. What a beautiful truth that God knows us and that He still chooses to have a relation with us through His Son, Jesus, and that He washes away our stains through the blood of Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 7. We are back in John. We've been outside of John now for a couple of weeks, and we've done some other things. Took a little break, I guess, in a sense, but now we're right back there in John chapter 7. We left off in, of course, the end of John 6, looking at the fact that Jesus' disciples have narrowed now to a small band who believe in Him and are following Him. Probably just the twelve. Maybe a few others. But the twelve have stuck close. In John uh, 1 through 5, Jesus has a very, a very widespread, big crowd ministry. As He travels the countryside, preaching the kingdom has come and delivering people from demon possession, healing people from their physical infirmities, feeding the 20,000 there on the hillside. The magnitude of His ministry has reached throughout Israel. All of Galilee, Judea are wrapped up in this strange prophetic voice that has never been to a school, a rabbinical school, never been trained, and yet He speaks with such authority from the Word of God. And He brings such powerful change to communities when He arrives. So much so that the whole world was being turned upside down. And a matter of fact, I shared with you, it's my belief that in the days of Christ's ministry, it was as close as we've ever come to the kingdom on earth. In that region of the world, sickness was being driven out. Death was being conquered. Demons were being cast to the far sides of the sea. The world was being released in Israel. At least in Israel, the world was being released and the kingdom of God was coming to the earth in the present visible ministry of Jesus Christ. It wasn't complete. It wasn't perfect yet, but it was coming. And it was very tangible. You could see it with your eyes. So in John 1 through 5, we should not be surprised that starting in Cana of Galilee at the wedding feast, the crowd builds around Christ. It just builds to a crescendo there in John 6. Probably 20 to 25,000 people gathered on a hillside in the wilderness to hear him teach. And he feeds them, right? And he rebukes them because they follow him to the other side of the sea the following day. And what are they looking for? What are they clamoring for? Physical food. Feed us again. Do another sign. Do another miracle. Do something, Jesus, to show your power. Jesus rebukes them. He says, you shouldn't seek after the, world, the food of this world, but rather heavenly food is what he turns their eyes to. And the, he brings in the teaching of the manna from the Old Testament to, to buttress his teaching at that moment. And he says that your fathers ate of that manna and they died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. Indeed, my flesh is bread and my blood is drink. And he who eats and drinks... My flesh and my blood will live forever. And at this, many turned away. 
They were offended. And they were offended not so much only because he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. That was confusing. But they were offended because Christ would dare say he was God. They understood the claim here of the incarnation. God dwelling in the flesh. They rejected that. They rejected him as the Messiah, the one who would come and lead his people. They were rejecting him as their savior, as their healer, as their redeemer. They were full-fledged rejecting everything Jesus had come to establish in their lives. And so many turned and walked away, and Jesus turned to that inner group and said, What? Will you also leave me? Jesus knew the answer. They were going to say no. But he asked the question, Will you leave me also? And that's where we ended, where you get the great proclamation from the twelve spoken by Peter. Where would we go? You have the words of life. Where, where else is there to go? You have the words of life. We have found that to be true, Jesus, and we believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God, is what Peter confesses. A great confession to which Jesus says, Be careful, Peter. I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. This is their physical, earthly choosing as the disciples. And one of you is the devil. So although immediately no one turned out of the twelve and walked away, Judas would walk away, right? Judas would reject him. Judas would go out because he wasn't part of them. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so the story ends there. Chapter 7, where we are this morning, the timing of God. I know that it would be more, maybe more pleasing to your ear to hear God's timing. But I want to keep it that way. The timing of God. John 7, 1 through 13. The passage has already been read for us. I, I'm, I don't want to read through the whole thing. I want to jump right in and say, God plans the detail and the outcome of all events. God plans the detail and the outcome of all events. We see this in the first five verses there. Look with me there, as, at beginning in verse 1. After this, that's a common way for, G, for John to transition. It's, it's a given that there's a break in time between 6 and 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. What is this, this period of time? What, what do they mean by, what does John mean by after this? Well, if you look, John 6 is written around the feast of the Passover. In John 7, we're going to see the account of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacle, the Feast of the Harvest, the Feast of the Ingathering. That's where we are now. Six months has passed. April to about the end of September, the beginning of October. So for those six months, we have nothing in the book of John to tell us what was happening except that he was in Galilee. He was going to and fro in Galilee there. He was traveling about. He was walking about. The literal rendering would be he was walking about, walking around in Galilee for six months, wandering around. We have nothing in John's gospel, yet the other gospel writers, Luke tells us that he not only was he in Galilee, but he again was casting out demons and healing the sick. Here is where we find the recording of the feeding of the 4,000, probably around... For uh, 4,000 people being fed miraculously again. 
from heaven through Christ's prayer and multiplication of the little small portion they had there in the wilderness. So it's here that Jesus is doing those great signs and miracles and wonders in this six months bracket. And I'm saying that God plans every detail and every outcome of all of the events of our lives. He planned this for Christ. Look what it says. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand, verse 2. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. We're dealing with the timing of God in this passage. It's time to go to the feast on the earthly clock. Jesus, come with us. We're going to the feast. It's legal that Christ go. Every male in Israel had to go to the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. Every male. Every male had to go there and prepare a booth, a tent. Let me explain quickly what that is so that you're not confused. It brings great significance to what Jesus is going to say and do in John 7 and 8. In this feast, known as the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, is presented to us in Leviticus, and that's where it's commanded in the Old Testament. Let me explain it quickly. The male uh, leader of the home was to construct a tent, a shelter. It was to be bound together by cord. It was to be wood framed. It was to have leaves laid over the top of it and on the sides of it. It was not to be connected to the ground. Rather, it was to sit on top of the ground. In other words, it was to be able to be moved, moved about. It was not to be a permanent structure. This is very important to what Jesus is going to say. You see, what God is teaching His people in the Feast of Tabernacles is several things. One, I tabernacled with you in the wilderness in a tent made with man's hands that was able to be broken down and moved. For 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness and God was a visible representation of them in pillar of cloud and fire. And that pillar of cloud and fire hovered over the tent of God, which was not permanent. It was moving, always moving. And God said, what he was teaching his people was that I tabernacled with you there. Jesus is going to say, God tabernacles in you when you believe in me. God's dwelling is not a house. He's going to say from the temple in John chapter 7, when the Spirit comes, when the Spirit indwells you, you'll have a river of life flowing out of you, overflowing out of you. He's saying, God's going to take residence in you people of Israel that believe in me and you will be a great overflow onto those around you of God's presence. You no longer come to a permanent place to worship made with hands, but rather you worship the God of heaven and earth that cannot be contained in a building, in a location. He's transient. He's everywhere. He's unleashed His power in your life which will overflow into the lives of others. God's teaching His people this from Leviticus forward. From Leviticus forward, God is saying, there will come a day where I will dwell in the man that believes in me. It's a powerful testimony of the faithfulness of God to keep His Word no matter how many years passes in our life, lives. 
That's one thing. Secondly, when I dwell among you, it will be a great harvest. There will be a great harvest. He placed this celebration in the harvest time of the year to symbolize when I dwell with my people, there is a great ingathering of souls. We're in the time of ingathering. We're in the time of God bringing millions of people to Himself. Don't believe the, the doomsday people. The church is not shrinking. The church is not falling back. The church is not being defeated. The church is moving forward and many are being saved in our day. It's not happening in the United States where churches have plateaued now. For a period of about the last five years, no upswing has taken place in the evangelical church. No great baptism numbers. No multiplication of visible churches Oh, there are churches being planted, but there are more dying and being closed than are opening and alive. So you might get discouraged and say, God's here, but is He here? There's nothing happening in Europe. We look across the ocean, Europe, the church is declining in Europe. It's gone past plateau. There are less Christians in Europe today than there were 100 years ago. Far less. And so you say, Oh no, the church is in desperation. We're losing the war. Trust me, in the, in the tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles, God was teaching His people, when I dwell with you, there will be a great ingathering when I'm with you. And Jesus is going to reiterate this point through the Spirit. And is it true today? I say yes. There is unprecedented growth of the church of God today. More people were saved last year. More people were saved last year than the thousand years that stretched from the death of Christ, or a little over a thousand years, the death of Christ to the Reformation. More people in one year saved. The church is moving forward. There is a great ingathering taking place. Where is God doing it now? He's doing it in Asia. He's doing it in South America in unprecedented numbers. The church is growing. Christ is gathering to Himself all of the elect from all of the nations of all of the earth. And God is among His people powerfully gathering souls to the kingdom. He's, he is victorious in this life. We live literally in the period known in, in some ways as the end gathering. How can you and I gather information from the tabernacle, Feast of Tabernacles? Is your home here or is your home there in heaven? You've got to answer that question. Jesus tells you how to answer it in Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So answer the question. You may not live in a tent, but is your home, is your home an earthly home? Is your mind and your heart captivated by the things offered in this world, material wealth, health, success, liberty, freedom? Is that your home offered in this country, offered in this world? Or is your home a heavenly home? Is your heart tied up in the things of this world or is your heart beating for the world that is to come? Which is it, Christian? See, maybe it would do us good to build shelters and live in transient tents for a month every year to remember 
Our security is not our home. Our security is not this nation. Our security is not the world economy. Our security is not wealth. It's not health. It's not anything in this world. Our security is God and God alone, the world that is to come. We are transient people, Christians. Do we look like transient people passing through? Or do we look like people who've taken up permanent residence in this place? See, I think it might do us some good to dwell in temporary shelter for a month every year. To call our minds back to the fact that God is dwelling among us. And He is transient. He is moving. He is at work. He is victorious. He is winning souls. He is building His church all over the world. Whether we see it in this nation or not, He is victorious and He's building. And we don't belong to this world. We belong to the next world. By the way, my security neighbor is not in my home. It's not in my bank account. It's not in my retirement. It's not in my job. It's not in success. It's not in my family. It's not in this nation. It's not in world peace. My hope is in Christ alone and the world that is to come. Maybe we should build some temporary shelters and live in our yards so people might say, those people are odd. What are they doing? Can you imagine the response? Can you imagine the response? They think we're weird already, don't they? Let's give them something to talk about, you know? Hey, listen. God's kingdom is transient and it's on the move. Has it ever struck you in your mind that there is no recognizable physical location for the center of Christianity? There never has been. Think about it. Hinduism, India, that's its home. That's its base. That's where it came from. That's where it grows. That's where they send missionaries from, Judaism. Where's its home? Jerusalem. The temple, even though it's not there, they still go to that western wall, don't they, and wail and weep and call on God. Muslim faith has a home. It's called Mecca, a physical city that people lay their eyes on and say, that's our home. That's where we belong. That's where we, that's where we want to go. That's where we must go. Christianity. Where is it? It started in Jerusalem. And God broke out among the people and many were saved. And then what happened? Persecution came. He scattered them to the ends of the earth. And then you might say Rome became the seat of Christianity. And you might think Rome, the city of Rome, that's where we belong. But Rome had its day, didn't it? Many missionaries during Paul's generation and, and Polycarp's generation, now Irenaeus and Eusebius and the great men of the faith during that era, there were many being saved in Rome and in the empire. And we, saw, we thought, we may have thought if we lived in, that's our home, that's our center. But then what happened? Persecution arose. People began to be killed. Roman, the Roman government made it illegal to be a Christian. And so the center of Christianity moved. Where did it go? It went to Macedonia and beyond that into Europe. And so we might have said, that's our home. That's where we're from. That's our home. Geneva is our home. The Reformation is our home. But what happened there? The light dwindled and people returned to the darkness and rejected the light. And what happened in England? Some people said, we're living under the persecution of this state. We can't worship in freedom. We'll go to Holland where they met persecution again. And they came back through England and then on the Mayflower to the United States. Christianity had found its bastion of freedom in the United States, hadn't it? No, it didn't. Only for a short time was this nation recognized as the center of Christianity. 
And then something much worse than persecution arose among us. Prosperity rose among us. And we forgot who we were and who we worshipped. And this nation is not the center of Christianity any longer. It's blasphemous to call this place a Christian nation. This is a secular, humanistic nation. We have a secularist government. We live in the middle of a fallen, degraded, sinful people. This is not the center of Christianity. What happened to it? Did it disappear? No. No, thank God it didn't disappear. It moved. It moved where? In the 70s and 80s, some of you remember the great explosion in Korea and in China and where the underground church began to be built by the thousands there. Some false, some true, but yet still, many were being saved. And what happened? Korea became wealthy. And they adopted Christian principles. Chuck can tell you all about it. And they built great prosperous cities. And they forgot where they came from. And they indoctrinated themselves with the prosperity gospel. And Christianity moved. Where has it gone? Has it disappeared? No. It's moved to Central and South America. Among the third world. The church. Among the uneducated. Among the poor of this world. The church is growing in astronomical numbers. And I want to predict something for you. It's not far away. Prosperity will strike. Or persecution will strike. In those regions. And Christianity will fall on hard times there. And the tent. The spirit will move again. And I don't know where it's going. But what if we would cry out as God's people? Oh God. Fallen you on us. What if we said. We desire a revival in this nation. And we fasted and prayed and sought after God's face for his timing so that that might occur. What if we would call on God faithfully to heal our land and cure our people? Would he answer us? I don't know. I tend to believe he would. And I think there is hope for America. But it's not in politics. It's not in our economy. It's not in somebody who makes a bunch of promises. Our hope is in Christ and him alone. And I refuse to believe that if we called on him and were broken in our spirit before him, that he wouldn't move among us again and save many thousands. I pray he does. I pray he does. The timing of God. God plans and He de- the details and the outcome of all events. That's the first thing we see in these first five verses is the timing of God. His brothers were working on worldly time. It's time to go to the feast, leave and go up there. They're focused on him making himself public. Now, don't get the idea he was doing miracles in houses under the cloak of darkness. Galilee was viewed as in secret. In other words, the brothers said, you're claiming, these are Jesus' half-brothers, his younger brothers. They're named for us as James, Simon, and Judas, or Jude. Those are his three brothers. And these brothers are saying, as unbelievers, you say you want to be the Messiah. You can't be the Messiah in Galilee. You've got to go be crowned in Jerusalem. Let's go make it public. Do your works there. If the leaders accept you, then you'll be the Messiah. They're working on their time, on the world's time, on Jewish time, not God's time. 
God has planned each and every detail and outcome for Christ and for us in our lives. Daniel chapter 9 tells us in verses 25 through 26 that there are 70 weeks, 7 days, which represent years. And so there was to be 400 and about 485 years between the time of Daniel and the death of Christ. And it is worked to perfection. Christ says here, in answer to his brothers, it's not my time. It's, it's not my time yet. You see that? It's not my time yet. It's your time because you're of the world and your time is always, you, you're accepted by the world because you're one of them. I'm not accepted by the world because I call their works evil. So you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast publicly. If Jesus had gone into the feast publicly, I'm convinced he would have been taken and killed. I'm convinced of that because the people in John chapter 6 want to make him a king. And either the Romans or the Jews would have killed him for that. Either the Romans would have killed him because he was in dereliction to Caesar. Or the Jews would have arrested him as blasphemous, calling himself the Messiah. He wouldn't have survived going up publicly to these people. And so it's not his time. So he does not go. These events turn out to be perfectly timed by God. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, in the very first sermon, I want you to turn there. Hold your place in John. There's places all over the New Testament we could go. Galatians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's so many places. But I think this one suffices to show that God plans each detail of our lives, of Christ's life and of our lives. Acts 2, verses 22 through 23. Peter says, Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. How did Christ come to be crucified? Many have wrongly blamed it on the Jews, and so we have a high rate of anti-Semitic views in the world. And have, for real, in the past, the Jews have faced persecution over the killing of Christ. Christians, so-called Christians, have killed the Jews, slaughtered the Jews, because they believe the Jews murdered Jesus. They blame them. And we might could agree partly with that, couldn't we? Because the Jews did arrest him, and they did take him before Pontius Pilate. Some have blamed the Romans, Pontius Pilate. They've said, hey, he could have stopped the whole bit. He admits there's nothing wrong with Jesus. There's no sin to be found. He could have stopped the crucifixion, but he didn't. So many have blamed him. Peter doesn't blame either. Who does Peter say planned by a definite plan? Christ's death. God. Those people who took him to the cross have lawless hands and they are sinners and they are guilty of sinning against God. But they are not outside of God's control nor his great plan of salvation. They are acting according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge when they take Christ to the cross. So we could say God definitely planned 
the works of Christ. He definitely planned the life of Christ and He definitely plans our lives. Let's quickly move to verse 11 through 13. I know that's out of order. I don't like to go out of order, but I think I want to come back and emphasize some things here uh, at the end. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So they've come to the feast. Everyone's been gathered there for the Feast of Tabernacles. And now there's this great discussion going on about Christ. He's not there. They can't find Him. And so the Jews, referenced in verse 11, that's the leaders, that's the Sanhedrin. Those are the political and religious leaders of the Jewish nation. They are saying to the people, they're bringing up a discussion to the people about Him, saying, where is He? And then the people were muttering about him. And look what some said. He's a good man. Others said, he's leading us astray. He's a false prophet. The second thing I want you to see from this paragraph is that people must answer the question of who Christ is. Everybody has to answer that question. You've got to answer that question. Some of you entered this place and you would agree with that first statement. He's a good man. When polled by all the great pollers of Isop and Gallup and no matter what it is, when people are asked what they feel or how they, what they know about Christ, you know, almost never. There is not even a measurable percentage of people who reject the answer to that question. Everybody wants to weigh in about who Jesus is. Lost and saved alike. Everybody has an affection of some sort or a hatred towards Christ. When polled, most people say he's a good man. They agree with this first statement. He was a good man. He taught us to love one another. He taught us to respect all cultures. He taught us to get along and have peace. He was a good man, a good philosopher, a religious person. Jesus doesn't leave that option open for you and I, neither for the world. He cannot be simply a good man. Does that shock you? Jesus is not a good man. By the standard that they're using, he's an evil man. He's not just a good man because he doesn't claim to be just a good man. Had he claimed to be a philosopher or a religious leader, he'd have been a good one. He didn't claim that for himself. What did he claim to be? God in the flesh. Therefore, he cannot be a good man. Either what he says is right, and he is God in the flesh, or what he says is a lie, and he is an evil man. He doesn't leave you the option of him being a good man. How many people, and how many in this room are going to stand before him at the judgment and say, well, Jesus, I thought you were a good man. Jesus, I don't know what exactly he's going to say, but I believe it will be something like, I never claimed to be a good man. I never told you I was good, man. I told you I was God in the flesh. By that standard, Jesus would be evil if he simply claimed to be a good man and then alternately claimed to be God in the flesh. He'd be a liar. He's either an evil man or he's a maniac. He's crazy, right? He's delusional. 
He believes he's in We've met others, haven't we? How many people lived through the 70s when so many people in this nation claimed to be Christ in the flesh? What's the difference between those who claim to be Christ and the real Christ, though? All of those people showed themselves to be delusional and crazy, didn't they? Many of them were mass murderers, like Charles Manson. Many of them led their people to total destruction, like Waco in the 90s, where hundreds were burned alive by a leader, David Koresh, who claimed to be Christ, the Messiah, again in the flesh. They've all proven themselves to be lunatics. Jesus, I bring you this about Jesus. Read the Gospels and the history accounts about Christ and you will find for yourself that he is neither delusional nor a lunatic. He is of a sane mind, always presented as in control of his passions and his words when he speaks. He's never just rattling off at the cuff. He never is seen to be delusional or crazy. Every claim he makes about himself is proven to be true. None of them ever disproven. So he's either a good, he can't be a good man, he's either evil or he's maniacal, he's crazy, he's a lunatic, or he's who he says he is. That's the only three options for Christ, for you, lost man, lost girl. Only three options. you got to make that in your heart decision. Is Jesus evil? Is he a lunatic? Is he God? You see, everybody has to make the decision about who they believe Christ to be. Christ asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Who does the world say that I am now? Who do you say that I am? He's saying the same thing to you. Tammy, who do you say that I am? Is what he's saying. John, who do you say that I am? Carlton, who do you say that I am? That's the question Christ would beg of us. Who do you say that he is? He's living on God's time. And in his preordained plan... And so are we, by the way. There's no fate or circumstance here. God has brought us to this place at this moment in time so that you can say and answer, who is Christ? That's why he's brought you here today. Whether you claim to be a Christian or whether you're lost and know you're lost or whether you think you're somewhere in between, he has timed for you to be in this service so that you might answer for yourself, Who is Christ? Evil, lying, and maniacal are God in the flesh. I pray you answer that question. And I'm going to close by that middle paragraph to show show you the last thing here, that Jesus was absolutely obedient to God's will and his timing. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, Jesus says. I'm not going up to the feast yet. Or I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. So Jesus says, 
in obedience to his Father's will. It's not time for me to be publicly ushered into Jerusalem, but privately to go to the feast. You see, some have taken this text and said, see, Jesus contradicts himself. He says he's not going to go, and then just a few verses later it says he went. It's a misunderstanding. Jesus is talking about his timing given to him by his Father. It's not time for the triumphal entry. Had Christ gone with the throngs of Israelites going to the feast, I'm convinced of this. What does occur in John chapter 12 would have occurred in John chapter 7. The people were so still ecstatic about his ministry, they would have lauded him as the Messiah and King, and they would have said, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They would have laid down palm branches, and they would have put him on a donkey, and they would have led him down the streets of Jerusalem, even to the temple. And there, he would have been caught, captured, and killed. But it wasn't God's time for that. So he waited. Maybe a span of two or three days. Everybody gathered to Jerusalem. And then Jesus went privately. How did he go? How did he journey? Well, we're left in other Gospels to see that the way he journeyed was from Galilee to Samaria to Jerusalem. Why Samaria? Jesus did not want to risk an encounter with anyone who would have begun to spread the word about him. So where were the Jews less likely to be? <laughs> In Samaria. So it's obvious his intent was not to say, I'm not going to the feast, but yet I'm not going publicly to the feast. You go publicly because you're of the world. They're not going to do anything to you. I'll come, but I'll come privately. After everyone's there, and so the scene is set, We'll see in weeks to come, Christ mysteriously appears to them. He's in their presence. All of a sudden, without any fanfare, any warning, he's there. And he's going to teach some great teachings. One, when the Spirit comes, your lives will overflow in an abundant, joyful life onto all those around you when God takes up tabernacle with you. Second great teaching, John chapter 8. He says, I am the light of the world. Two great teachings are going to come and then he's going to withdraw again from Jerusalem quickly because it's not his time. He trusted God's timing for his life. So some practical questions as we close, as we move to a close. Do you trust God's timing for your life? Christ did. Some of you say, you're in school and you say, I've been delayed. Have you really been delayed? Or does God have you an extra year at JSU for some ministry reason, for your life, so you might be a part of this congregation? Some of you drawing to the end of your career and you say, does God want me to or not quit what I'm doing? And it's a big decision. It's not to be taken lightly. It burdens and weighs you down. God's timing is perfect. It's perfect. Some of you are just beginning your careers and you're saying, man, is this where I need to be or do I need to be over there? Let me tell you, God's got you here for a purpose and he will move you for a purpose. He is very purposeful with your life. It's not scattered and broken and thrown around in the wind. He's moving you. Maybe this picture will help as we close. Thomas Aquinas, the middle ages philosopher talked of God as outside of time 
looking at time as like a river. Okay? When you, the human, are on the river, taking the river path, you can't see beyond yourself. So you see the tree, and then in sequence you see a rock, and then in sequence you see a turn, and then in sequence you see a rapid, and then in sequence after that you get to the mouth of the river. But God, being God, is above you in time and outside of that time, and he sees the entire river. He sees the rock, the tree, the rock, the turn, the rapid, and the mouth of the river all at the same time. He knows it perfectly. So wherever you are in your journey, though, you don't know what comes next. God knows what comes next because he architected it. He built it. He made it for you. I would make one appendix to that understanding. I believe God is outside of time, not bound by it. But I believe, because of what I see in the Bible, that he has inserted himself in time with you. So not only is God up here seeing your whole life, but God is with you daily in your life, going through that life with you in an experiential way. And so as your fears build about that turn in the river, I can't see it. God is saying to you, I can see it. Hold on. I've got you. I know what's around the bend. Those rapids are big. I'm scared to death. I can't navigate that. I'm not ready for it. God's saying, I've prepared you. Don't panic. I'll walk with you. God is with us, tabernacling with us, as John 7 teaches us. And he is above us so that nothing catches him off guard. He's transcendent and he's imminent. So when you're praying on your way to work and you're panicking about some situation, know this, God is there with you and he is not panicked. He understands your panic because he knows you can't see what's coming, but he can see it. And he's saying, cast your cares on me for I care for you. That's how God's the timing of God. That disease has struck and you don't know the outcome and you're scared to death. And he's saying, take my yoke on you for it's easy and my burden for it's light. You see how sweet our God is, how personal he is, and yet how authoritative and controlled he is over all situations. See, you would have read this paragraph because it's what I did in my study when I first read it and thought this is a boring, boring passage. How am I ever going to preach this thing? There's so much meat. So much depth in the detail. The timing of God. Trust Him. Christ did. He will carry you. He carried Christ. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for doubting, for our unbelief, as we go through these situations in our lives, on that river, in that journey, and we don't know what lies ahead, and so we're afraid. Help us to remember in those times that you are not only above us, but you are with us. You're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and we should fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
And you even prepare a banquet table for me in the presence of my enemies, and I will be joyful forevermore. What a glorious truth that you've taught us. May we remember Matthew 6, which says, even though I may not know where my next meal comes from, God knows because he feeds the sparrows. And He and He and feeds if he feeds and cares for them, does he not so much more care for you who are worth so much more to him in his kingdom? So fear not. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things are added to you. Don't worry about it. Oh God, help us to remember that. Those are personal things that we need to grab hold of for our lives in this week to come because so many in this congregation are afraid, worried, confused, don't know the future, and yet they know the God who holds the future. So help them, God. Help them and help me. On this journey, may we trust you. May we believe in you. May we be in joyful praise of you no matter our circumstances. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. As we close our-